Let us turn to Genesis. Genesis, one more time before we take a pause and resume where we were in Matthew next week. A fitting place to pause as we are at the end of one of the most important men of the Bible, Abraham. As I was considering the life and the legacy of Abraham, I see a parallel in something that has just caught my personal fascination in the last couple years. Our family loves going to the safari park out in Escondido, and one of the things that's kind of overlooked, it's really easy to miss, is the bonsai tree garden. I'm not sure if any of you have seen it. It is a beautiful little uh, area set aside that's hosted by a local club that cares, and this is their handiwork and craftsmanship, and so it ignited me an interest to research a bit on bonsai trees and fascinating history that's been around for thousands of years. And one of the people that came up on my search was this bonsai master who is the first and only female uh, bonsai master. Who's, she is the fourth generation in her family to take on this craftsmanship and art, and she's been doing it for 51 years. And she's explaining how these trees are made in the art and the time and it's made clear that the hardest skill to master when it comes to caring for this, these trees is patience. She brings out this little tree with two sprigs on it and says, this took 15 years. And then she brings out this other little tree with four branches and says, this one took 25 years. And as she is having this foresight on this artwork of what she hopes this tree will become, she clarifies, it takes three to five years to make any change to the tree. Three to five years for one change. And then she brought out this massive, gorgeous tree. And she said, this tree was started by my grandfather 100 years ago. And she still is caring for it. She makes the comment that there are no immediate results. So I hope to live a long life to see the results. <laughs> She says that a bonsai tree caretaker plants the seeds now, but then has to hand it off to the next people. It takes two to three generations to make the craftsmanship of these trees. The meticulous attention, that even part of her responsibility isn't just the daily care and watching, but once a decade she has to pull the tree up and start chipping away at the roots that are starting to make the tree die. Something about this single piece of craftsmanship I believe displays what God does for his children. The care, the attention, the needing to trim certain branches to take other branches and put wires around it in rocks that there would be this long-term vision of art to come, but it's never immediate. It's years in the making. One of my favorite comments from our Ramona small group in the discussions of Abraham's life was realizing how long of a journey Abraham had and that one of the key turning points was 25 years into his faith. So one of our small group members says, uh, that's me, I'm on the 25-year plan. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, that's what we all are on, the workmanship of grace. It is a picture of Ephesians 2.10 that says, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus to do good works that we have been prepared beforehand. An appropriate way to consider this 
final couple acts of Abraham, the archetype of the journey of faith, the man that God chose to begin the new chapter of how he would reconcile the nations, how he'd bring blessing to our cursed existence, how he would bring about the promised seed. Here we find the concepts of faith for the first time and that by faith, Abraham was counted righteous. And as we look, we also begin to understand not just the final good works of Abraham, but what has the final say over Abraham's life. And here's what I want to cherish this morning as we consider this final piece of Abraham's life and his death. God's work in our lives is our daily faith. It's what we've learned so far, a daily faith that goes to the end. But the final word over every life of God's people is his grace. Faith is our daily task, but his grace is the final word at the end. That is the gift of a covenant with God, the gift of salvation. We're going to consider three truths as we see Moses finish this patriarch's testimony. Please look with me on just the first couple verses in chapter 25 of Genesis, starting in verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram and Latushim and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. As we begin to see this final chapter of Abraham's life, appreciate that we're just getting a couple extra facts, pieces of the story as Abraham begins to end his journey, his portion of days the Lord has gifted him with. The last recorded words of Abraham are not in this chapter. The last thing that Abraham is recorded to speak is in Genesis 24. Glance there briefly with me in Genesis 24 in the first couple verses. The last thing we have Abraham speaking, I think appropriately summarizes all that God has been doing in his life. In verse 2 of 24, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Skip down. There's a question. What happens if she rejects? Abraham says, lastly, see to it, verse 6, that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son from there. The last thing Abraham is speaking into biblical history is his conviction in the promises of God. And that took decades of God's sovereign, faithful love. We noted last week that 
This wasn't just a marriage chapter. This was the faithfulness of a father to see to it that the next generation of God's plan would be equipped and able to continue on in the covenant promises. A beautiful chapter that Moses would rightly end on and just then speak about Abraham's death. In fact, at the end of chapter 24, it seems to feel as if Abraham's already out of the picture. The focus is now the next Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah taking on as the head of the household. But instead of ending here on this glorious note of a faithful father, he then brings up that Abraham had married again. Another wife. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. We know nothing else about this woman, where she came from, what's her heritage. All we know is her posterity. In these verses, we see not only the six sons that Abraham bears with her, but seven grandsons come, and even three great-grandsons. Could be Moses is highlighting a, an important origin to future nations. Genesis does serve as the book of origins. Moses spends a special time showing where many of the nations and neighbors to the people of God find their history within the patriarchs, with Ishmael and Abraham's relatives. Even the name Midian would highlight something personal for Abraham, as that would be the heritage of Zipporah, his wife. Before we begin to answer the question of why does he then bring this up, how do we feel about him marrying again? The last time this happened was Hagar, and it didn't end too well. We understand with the incident of Hagar, that was done out of unbelief. He did not believe the promise of God, and so him and Sarah decided to choose a socially acceptable path to bring about God's promises rather than trusting the path of faith. Here we're given another marriage. It's clear by the text this wasn't a normal marriage contract that she was a concubine. It's difficult for us to appreciate the cultural differences with these arrangements. So how should we understand this addendum to Abraham's life? Not only an additional marriage, but the kids after, Isaac. He has the promised son. Is Moses giving this text as a way of saying that here the flawed human continues? Is Moses is stating facts of what was permitted by God? Was it a final immediate gift to Abraham that he was to still bear much fruit, that there would be more sons, that other nations would come? We understand that these sons would be nations in the future. Moses doesn't answer these questions. And as we're left with the questions and not necessarily the answers, there was a sweet parallel with one of the books that my wife has been reading Hannah's really been enjoying that two-part biography on Elizabeth Elliot by Ellen Vaughn. And if you don't know who Elizabeth Elliot is, she was the wife of one of the missionaries who were martyred bringing the gospel to Ecuador. Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, and the men who were bringing the gospel who had not been reached were died in the, in the, for the sake of these tribes' salvation. And, and they did come to Christ, and the wives were a part of their uh, ministry to see, too, that the gospel was made known, and a church was began. And we know Elizabeth mainly for this amazing uh, call and faithfulness, but not much is said after uh, that missionary movement because then she comes back to the States and starts a whole new chapter of her life. And the biographer struggles. She testifies that as she begins to learn later about Elizabeth Elliot, she doesn't know what to write because she's also a flawed human. And it wasn't necessarily that there was some great scandal. It was just more that the great hero of the mission work 
began to fade into a normal life and made decisions that some would ask and have questions concerning. And so as Ellen Vaughn's wrestling with how do I give this biography about Elizabeth Elliot, not wanting to tarnish the example she was in her missionary life, she actually quotes Elizabeth Elliot that guides her in this biography. Here's something Elizabeth Elliot wrote as she was speaking about the Bible's understanding about life. Here are these words from Elizabeth Elliot. Possibly, there is no better model for biography than the Bible. There it is perfectly plain that a true understanding of the world is not to be gained by pretending that things are other than what they are. If there is good, let it not be exaggerated. If there are evils, let us see what they are. And if we will, let us bring to bear upon the light of biblical faith. But let us not operate as though they simply did not exist and therefore did not need redemption. So Ellen Vaughn took this wisdom and followed the policy of speaking the truth and love about Elizabeth's later years. And then she writes this, Flawed and relatable protagonists showcase the supernatural power of God. We all resonate with them as opposed to the dull folk of fake religiosity. Ellen's point in looking at Elizabeth is that the best stories are the most real and true. They're honest. That's what God redeems. God doesn't ignore our questionable decisions. God doesn't minimize the shame of our mistakes. He redeems them. He knows them. I think as we read the story of Abraham in his final days, however we read it, the Bible is frank and honest, as God is frank and honest with our lives. He knows our past. He knows our sins. And yet, like Abraham, he redeems us. However, even as we question the decision of this other marriage and more children, there is something Moses wants to make clear and it's Abraham's finished resolve and how he responds to these sons in this additional branch of the family. Look at verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac. The first point I want to appreciate as we consider this addendum to Abraham's life is point one. Choose the promises of God through all our decisions and all our days. Choose the promises of God. After all that Abraham had done, whether right or wrong, Moses wants us to make clear, Abraham never lost sight of God's plan. These other branches of the family would not take the inheritance God had given to Isaac. Abraham did not split his inheritance how he felt best emotionally. He did not do it with what's socially acceptable. He did it on how God revealed. And in Genesis 17, the heir is made clear Isaac. All was given to Isaac. These other sons were blessed. You can see the kindness where he gives gifts to them, but then he sends them away to become whatever God has for them, that Isaac would inherit the covenant blessings God had privileged him with. What we're seeing is Moses making clear that Abraham never confused what nation God was going to make. When God said, I will make you into a great nation, Abraham understood this was more than biology, though that would be part of it, that they would be as numerous as the stars and as vast as the sand on the seashore. 
But what would bind the nation to come was not an origin by blood to Abraham, but an origin bound by God's covenant. The people of God are not defined by family relation, but by the grace God has given, and we respond in faith. Isaac was the plan of God. And how sweet that even after all those years, the wisdom Abraham is acting on is the wisdom Sarah spoke when they had the conflict of Hagar and Ishmael. Remember that when Ishmael began to mock Isaac, Sarah understood a parting of the ways needed to happen. And she said, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this was painful. Abraham's actual firstborn, he had to part with, choosing not his plan, but God's plan. I don't believe the sending out of these sons was some kind of cruelty as a father. I believe Abraham is acting in faith. These sons would become nations that would be noted later in the Old Testament. But God had named who would be the covenant heir. And it was not Midian, it was not Ishmael, it was Isaac. I love how Derek Kidner adds one more emphasis on this point. Derek Kidner is a commentator and he writes, In God's plan, these sons were sent away that there might become a home for them to return to. The plan of God was that the seed chosen by him would be the blessing for the nations. And so the nations are sent out that the blessing can happen, that they may return and find the promise. And this is actually a pattern in Scripture. God sends us out because of our sin that we can be saved. God never covers up saying, you're not really a sinner. It's okay. Just come here and let's have a group hug. God says, you don't know how awful your sin is, how selfish you are. I'm sending you out and I will send my son to satisfy the wrath you deserve that he would bring you home to me. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60? Isaiah chapter 60, one of the most helpful habits as we read any scriptures to see what other scriptures say to give light and clarity. And we read scripture by scripture. And this concept of the nations being separated that they might return and find the blessing of God, I believe is said right here in Isaiah 60, that the prophet may have been reading these chapters and saw the messianic fulfillment to come. Isaiah chapter 60, beginning in verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Do you hear what the gospel writers declared? The light, the glory of God. Isaiah saw it in part. And then the heavens were ripped open over Jesus saying, this is my beloved son. He says, I see that coming. Now look at verse three. Isaiah 60 verse three, and nations shall come to your light. The light arises that the nations would come and see and kings to the brightness of your rising. If that's not enough to help answer the question of these sons being sent out, now look at verse six. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of 
Midian, and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. Those are the exact names of Abraham's sons. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Kedar and Nebioth, those are the sons of Ishmael that we're about to read. The prophet is reading Genesis 25 and saying these sons who were outside the covenant blessing are going to come be part of the blessing and they will beautify the house of God with praises. This is what God meant. We said, Abraham, through you, nations will be blessed. Through you, through this distinguished line, this people of God being set apart, all nations will find my salvation. So brothers and sisters, it is good that God separates those who are unsaved. They need to know their exile that they may come home. We give no false assurances. We preach the gospel that they would be saved and be God's forever. Now turn back to Genesis. Here we see Abraham choosing a difficult decision to send out the sons that Isaac would be made clear and protected for his inheritance. And I think we can appreciate the action of Abraham in verse 6 of chapter 25. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away. Notice that. He didn't say, Isaac, this is your job. You got to make yourself clear as the heir. He didn't offshore the responsibility. He was faithful to the end with what God had entrusted him, which meant that when it came to the estate and what was being declared of God's blessing, he needed to make clear to these sons, it is Isaac whom God has blessed. Abraham didn't wait for Isaac to give his own testimony. It was his fatherly responsibility. I think we can appreciate and pause the hard sacrifices Abraham was required in obeying God. He needed to choose the promises of God through all his decisions, even to the end of his days. And is that not what faith is? Faith is our daily decision, and it is a determined decision every day. It's not something we must just decide today, but we know tomorrow, no matter what comes, I choose the promises of God. And that means hard sacrifices. But as those sacrifices are made, what is being made known to these sons and to the nations? Where to find God's promise? It wasn't to the glory of Abraham. It was to highlight the plan of blessing, of redemption. How does that translate for us today? I'd like to highlight a few applications at this point. And understanding choosing the promises is a costly choice of saying no to other things to say yes to the Lord. We hear Christ's own call of discipleship. We must love God above every relationship we have in this world. Luke 14 says you got to hate everyone to love Jesus. Which is Jesus' way of saying that my love should be so beautiful and so true in your life that it just pales every other affection you have in life. He's not encouraging hatred. He's encouraging a singular, jealous, covenanted love that pales all other affections, even the affections of our children, of our spouses, of our friends. 
one of the hardest questions I've ever been, I think it's fair to say, one of the hardest questions I've ever been asked because I'm a Christian was when I was stocking shelves at Costco and my lesbian employee who loved to try giving hard questions to me, and I loved those conversations, she asked me one day, what will you do if your son becomes gay? How are you going to respond to that? I think that was harder than any question about the historicity of the flood. I'd say that's even harder than the question about suffering and pain. How can a holy, good God be sovereign? And I answered her that I love Jesus, and I will love my son. I can love my son without affirming his lifestyle. And the best thing I can do is to love my son with the love of Christ. I'm sure I said more and probably fumbled and wasn't clear, but the more I understand that question of something so personal and dear, I understand that faith is costly. And it means that people I love who choose lifestyles antagonistic to God, I will make clear that is not what God is pleased with. And yet God still loves you because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think also as we even consider this call, not just relationally, but vocationally, the way we plan our lives. This isn't just about the cost today, but the hard decisions in the future. Are we planning our lives in a way that makes clear, I only live for the kingdom? Abraham, to his dying days, in the distinction of his estate, declares to all, I'd live for God's covenant. We live in a culture of immediate results, shortcuts, If it's hard, it's probably wrong. If it's inconvenient, it's a closed door. And yet God says that to follow him is to pick up a cross. And that might mean doing a hard labor of preparing for amazing works in the future. It might mean that you're called to the mission field and you have to leave everything behind to go preach the gospel in a culture you have no idea anything about, but you're going to learn their language. It might mean that ministry is in your future and you need to spend years preparing to be a faithful elder It might mean that you don't get to marry and you're going to devote your life as a single completely to whatever God puts you in, faithful where he places you in your job, faithful in your church. It might mean that you have to give up personal comforts because you know they're addictive and you would be scared to know that that addiction would kill the faith in your heart whatever hard sacrifices, your life is known like Abraham. I choose the promises of God. Look again with me at Genesis 25, verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. The second point I want us to appreciate is that we are called to rest in the promises of God. There's something beautiful that as we look at the fullness of Abraham's life and legacy, he is being rested in a complete journey. Here is a full life of God's plan for him. Just appreciate even the epitaph. There's first this completion. Abraham breathed his last The Bible makes clear that every breath is in God's hands, Daniel chapter 5. So the last breath already has a day attached to it. 
And Abraham completed his journey. Appreciate too, it doesn't say Abram. This Abram doesn't exist anymore. This is Abraham, the man God called to himself, named and claimed for himself by covenant. That's the legacy here. And this man was blessed. He died in a good old age. There is longevity. God's physical blessing is not given to everyone, but it was given to Abraham to even appreciate that he was able to see his great or his grandchildren through Keturah, a kind gift to the Lord. If you were to actually match up the dates with Isaac's life, he actually lives to see Jacob and Esau to the age of 15. Moses wants to complete Abraham's story to then focus on the next chapter of God's plan, but appreciate he got to see the twins. He heard the prophecy spoken to Rebekah. He began to understand what God might be doing in that third link in the chain. What we're seeing here is what he prophesied in Genesis 15, that when God made the covenant, he says to Abraham, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Moses fills the epitaph with those exact words to say, God was faithful. Abraham is resting in the promises of God. There is fullness. He was an old man and full of years. We're not just speaking of life, but even the deeper work of grace. His life is full of grace. And though this is a cultural remark, the final phrase, to be gathered to his people, is that not a culminating mark for the Christian? We're not just finishing a life and and joining our ancestors. We're joining the ranks of those of faith. We are entering the halls of the king, being gathered to who we are, the people of God. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, marking the very people that Abraham would have greeted when he met God. Adam and Eve and Abel and Seth and Enoch, Lamech and Noah, greeted by all as the next generation, where God proved himself faithful again in his grace. This is a full life in God's plan. To be by a graveside is to always remember that our days are portioned by God's grace. I think the right response, even as we are here by Abraham's graveside in the text of Scripture, is to hear again the wisdom of Psalm 90. I encourage you to read that chapter this week. For the sake of time, let me summarize. As Psalm 90 declares how everlasting God is, And we are just dust. We die, but God continues. Moses gives three wisdoms of how we are to remember and live by our frailty. The first is to pray, teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That every grave reminds us that each day is never to be taken for granted. Not just that we have the gift of living, but there's a task for living. We number our days with wisdom by being faithful with the tasks today. Teach us to be faithful to our tasks, O Lord, to number our days that we may stand before you in joy. The second instruction Psalm 90 gives us is to pray, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That each day portion is to declare, I'm breathing because God is steadfast. I am satisfied only in God's love, not my wants or lack of wants. I have no other strength but the love of the Lord. And then the psalm ends with a third prayer. 
Teach us to number our days. Satisfy us in the morning with your love. Establish the work of our hands. When we understand God is everlasting and we are not, nothing we can do will outlast our lives except for what God blesses. Unless the Lord builds the house, the house is in vain. And so as we pray, establish the work of our hands, O Lord, we are declaring, I have no other confidence. I depend on nothing else than you, O Lord. Psalm 90 is our guide, our wisdom, and should be our daily prayer. That also, whatever days we are numbered, something similar could be said, like verse 8 of Genesis 25. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. O Lord, may it be so for each of your children here today. Here we have a finished life, not just in God's plan, but it finishes where he needed to be in God's land. Look at verse 9 with me. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Remember in Genesis 23 that one of the last things Abraham does is buy just a piece of God's promise and make sure to bury his wife in the promised land. This wasn't just an act of a good husband. This was his act too. Where his bones will rest is in God's land. When he awakes in the resurrection, he will see that small piece of land be transformed into a new heavens and a new earth. He is buried in faith, buried in God's promise. And there's something sweet about Abraham being buried with Sarah, not Hagar, not Keturah, but his co-heir of grace. She whom God also called to be part of this plan, to be the mother of faith. Even here, as we hear the words, Abraham was buried, we understand the promise was unchanged by Abraham's death. Even death can't stop the, God's, the plan of God. One writer adds, while they themselves, Sarah and Abraham, were silent in that grave, the grave cried aloud that death formed no obstacle to their possession of God's land. Even here, I highlight the words of Hebrews 11, that all these died in faith. Even their deaths were a testimony to what they believed. And Hebrews eleven sixteen says, and God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham is buried in God's promise. Don't miss, though, in verse 9, who buries him. It was not Keturah's sons. Isaac and Ishmael, verse 9, his sons buried him. There's something profound about this, that at the end of the life, who is to bury Abraham? but the two sons that symbolize the two aspects of Abraham's life, the mistake and the miracle. Ishmael was Abraham's greatest mistake and sin. Him and Hagar doubted God. And that doubt caused bitterness and rivalry. It caused inevitable abandonment where he had to send off Ishmael to fend for himself. Ishmael is Abraham's shame. And yet, 
at this graveside, Isaac buries his father, who is the miracle of God's grace, that despite that shame, God still gave the son he promised through Sarah. This isn't just a legacy that defined Abraham. It's a legacy that will define us all. We will all have lives and days that we will regret. Shame. Mistakes. But when we look to Jesus face to face, our shame will be like a fleeing shadow before the sun. Because what has the final say of our lives is not our shame but God's grace. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, in Christ, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Shame may be part of our burial, but it will not be part of our resurrection. Buried in God's promise, buried by his legacy. And then comes the crucial verse in verse 11. One of the most important verses in this chapter. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Abraham died, but God's plan didn't. God establishes and is faithful to the son he chose. Genesis 17 makes clear that God chose Isaac and he says, I will establish him. This is a work of God. So when Abraham dies, God must act in faithfulness to establish his next plan. And he does. God blessed Isaac. Moses wants us to understand that the plan did not end with Abraham and the plan did not depend on Abraham. That as only God walked through the covenant sacrifices. Here we see it again. It was not because Abraham was a faithful father that, Isaac ble- that God blesses Isaac. It's because God was a faithful God that he blesses Isaac. The covenant still depended on him as it continued into the next generation of his work. But in case we miss what is also obvious is that Abraham was faithful as a father, even to the dividing of his estate. We know Abraham was faithful because Isaac was a faithful son. Isaac was so faithful and loved the Lord that Jacob, the next line, gave a new name to God. In Genesis chapter 31, when Jacob speaks about who God is, he calls him the fear of Isaac. Abraham feared God when he offered Isaac, and that fear was taught to the heart of Isaac. So much that the grandson would say, I know who God is. It's the fear of my father, the fear of Isaac. Here we come to the truth we've already been cherishing in this morning's service. The next generation of God's people is the fruit of our discipleship. The next generation of God's work is our responsibility. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 71 prays, Even to old age, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Christians don't selfishly hoard grace. 
Christians don't selfishly focus their prayers only on their wants and needs. Christians make disciples. We lead to the finish. We don't build life for ourselves and we don't make life dependent on ourselves because God's plan is not dependent on us. It doesn't die when we die. Praise the Lord. But that's the problem is often we, we do focus on ourselves. We do think life's about us. Our lives speak more about what we want than who God is. That is the first of two errors when a life is built for ourselves or depending on ourselves that is self-focused, not God-focused. We kind of keep to our lane. We keep to ourselves. You deal with your own sin problems. Nobody has to know or help you. That's just pride. But when we build life for ourselves or make things depend on ourselves, we're also being short-sighted and not eternally seeing. Because God is using us to be the hands and feet to prepare the next generation that they may be faithful and know who God is. That is eternal sight that goes beyond even the portion of our days. I think this is a key problem with why churches die. Churches die because they become self-focused, not God-focused. Churches die because they become short-sighted, not eternally seen. One church I had the joy of serving with was heartbreaking because all we had left in the church were the grandparents. And you can't ever single a, a one factor to why something happens the way it does. But wasn't it telling that here was this church and there was no more of the next generation? And it was also a church that really struggled to let go of how they always did things. Whenever they planned something, they always talked about going back to what they were. They never talked about what does the Bible have for us today and where we need to be. I'm not trying to condemn this dear church, but isn't that telling and isn't that a warning for us? Are we gripping what we want out of church? Or are we joining Christ in the garden, not my will, but yours be done? And then do we understand that God's will for us is to love others, to equip them into faith, to make disciples who make disciples of all nations. As we consider the fact that here is Abraham being buried, he is resting in the promises of God where he had failed and where he had faith. I think it's appropriate to hear the exhortations of Hebrews We've been in Hebrews in the years of the Bible plan, and it was hard not to miss the exact commands that I believe Abraham would be preaching to us if he were here today. First, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. As we look at Abraham's life, he is calling us to reach it. The promise still stands. You're breathing. Finish the race, resting in the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How do we inherit the promises? Faith and patience. We reach it. And we're not sluggish. We are earnest. And where does that passion and heart come from? By being gripped in the hope we have. 
a hope that is much better than anything this life can offer. We rest in the promises of God. And what a gift that despite the mistakes we will make, the failures we will have, it's grace that has the final say, just like for Abraham. Point one, choose the promise of God. Point two, rest in the promises of God. And finally, trust in God's promise with what is out of our hands and out of sight. Look at how uh, Moses continues. Isaac is highlighted where God's blessing is, but then before he presses on to Isaac, he needs to conclude Ishmael. Verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mipsam, Mishma, Duma, Masah, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. So why does Moses give this extra focus on Ishmael when he doesn't give any of that focus to Keturah's sons? They also were Abraham's sons. Let us not forget that three times God has prophesied over Ishmael. Three times has God ensured that although Ishmael is not God's chosen son, he will bless him for the sake of Abraham. And in those promised descriptions, we find in Genesis 17, these words where God says, I have blessed Ishmael and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Moses adds this extra genealogy, this generation to make clear that even what became out of sight for Abraham, the son he had to cast out, what was no longer in his hands, God did not fail the promise. The things that we consider lesser, the things that we don't have control over, God is still working and God is failing. You can take God to court with the contract. You will not find one detail where he will fail what he has spoken. Matthew 5, verse 18, for truly I say to you, double emphasis from our Messiah, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What does Moses wish for us to see? That even on this branch of the family that was outside the covenant, God still was sovereignly faithful. Appreciate too that in this description, Moses infuses the way God prophesied over Ishmael's life. Yes, Ishmael died <clears throat> in, uh, and was gathered to his people. He breathed his last, verse 17. But note what is not mentioned. He did not die in a good old age, an old man full of years, as his father. Instead, look at the way the passage finishes in verse 18. He settled over and against all his kinsmen. That's the exact words God said would happen. Ishmael would not be known by faith. He'd be known by his fist. In Genesis 16, it describes he'll be a wild donkey of a man where everyone's against him and he's against everyone. 
to his dying day, that's what was made known. Not the promises of God, but his prowess. Not that he then turned to Isaac to find hope for himself, but that he claimed what he could by his own ferocity. He was a force to be reckoned with. Can we appreciate that that's not who God chooses in his plan often? God doesn't choose the strong, military, obvious picks, the guy who then has 12 sons. There's a nation in the making. God didn't choose him. God chose the son meditating in the fields who was to marry another barren wife, like Abraham married Sarah. God delights in choosing the weak, but those who are devoted to him, not the people we think would be the obvious picks. I think this is a fresh warning. We are not to be confused by brash, bombastic personalities that are very loud online. Popular preachers with highly viewed videos. God's delight is not sharp wit or the volume of voices, but Isaiah 66, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. God's not looking for those who tell you like it is and throw their weight around. He's looking for those who are on their knees praying and tremble at his word and say, not my will, but yours be done. As we appreciate Ishmael being made clear and Moses narrating infused with what God had portioned in kindness to Ishmael, we are also challenged. Can we trust God for the things that are no longer in our hands? The things that are out of sight? Do we know what is true by his word more than what we feel in our emotions? Can we trust in God's promises? That if God didn't overlook his word for this belligerent, unbelieving Ishmael, will he overlook the promises for you? You might not see how you'll ever grow out of your short temper. But can you believe that when God says he's making you holy right where you are through what is in your life? Can you believe it? You may not see the fruit of what your simple job might be doing and having a dead end to promotions, but can you trust his daily bread and provision for you? You may not see how that person can ever be saved because of what they said and how they've spurned you and will never talk to you again, but can you trust his light to be clear through you as you share the glory of his son? You might wonder, how will God ever heal this relationship, my marriage, this dearly loved one? Can you see that even here in this conflict, God is illuminating his steadfast love for you? See, God's promises are clear in Scripture with what he gives. There are many things out of our hands, but can you trust in with what God does give to your hands? There's not a failed detail to the gospel, only God's fulfilling work. Turn with me now to James chapter 2. Near the end of the Bible, after the book of Hebrews, James is included. And in here is one of the few places in the New Testament where we are given a bit of the legacy of Abraham that begins to summarize how all should read his story. 
We have Hebrews 11, which gives the most focus out of all the biblical characters to Abraham. We have Romans 4, which we read earlier, how the whole plan of salvation was illustrated in that simple phrase, it was counted to him as righteous. But I love this description here by James as he is challenging the church and understanding what is faith. Because I do believe that if there is something about Abraham's life that summarizes everything God was doing, it was to teach us what is faith. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Don't misunderstand. He's not teaching you work out your salvation because you are saved by works. You're saying if your faith is real and alive, you will show it, even like Abraham, to give up the most precious thing in your life, saying, God, I obey you. Nothing else matters. That is faith. It faith completed, bringing fruit of what you are saying you rest your eternity on. And then verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. As we consider the legacy of Abraham, he was not a failed sinner. He was God's friend by God's grace. The legacy of Abraham is how God was faithful to Abraham's dying day to forge what faith is, that we all would be instructed. Romans 4, once again, it was counted to him, was not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Abraham was illustrated and worked through that we would know what faith is. As God was sovereignly not giving up on Abraham, he already knew your sins. He already knew what you were going to struggle with, and he wanted to prove to you here in the scriptures, I did not fail Abraham. I will not fail you. God makes friends of his enemies. God makes friends of his failures. The people who failed him rebelled against him. He was called a friend of God. And what is the foundation of that relationship? That it was counted to us as righteousness the gift of God's righteousness by the perfect life and satisfying death of the true son of Abraham. Hear that to the assurance of our own souls that what makes our relationship with the Lord is not the best parenting. What makes our relationship with the Lord is not a successful life. What makes a relationship with the Lord is not our happiness or the perfect church. It is God counting us Righteous, because we are utterly desperate, despondent, and devoted to him. As we consider the Abraham's life, though, we are not just taught what faith is. Faith is costly. Faith is personal. Faith is continual. We learn the worthiness of God for our faith. God is always revealing himself in Scripture, but how did God reveal himself most clearly? He didn't drop books from the sky. Here's a theology book. This is who I am. Be nice. I would like a book like that, personally. 
God didn't make himself known just by the very existence of creation. God made himself known clearest by how he saved people. It is through people that God revealed his name. Appreciate what we have learned about the glory of God just through one man's life. In the beginning of of Abraham's uh, journey in Genesis 12, he builds an altar after responding to the God who calls him and makes these promises, and he calls upon the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh. Whether or not Yahweh was made clear or not, he was beginning to understand personally who God is, Genesis 12, 8. In Genesis 14, Abraham declares what he has learned about God. This is the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. The God who called him was not a tribal God or a God of just one element of nature. This was the possessor of heaven and earth, God most high. In Genesis 15, when God speaks to him, begins the actual ceremony of the covenant, he says to Abraham, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. God's name is the shield of his people. In Genesis 16, as God is cleaning up the sins of Abraham as Hagar is fleeing. God comes to Hagar and says his kindness to her. And what does Hagar testify? You are a God of seeing, the God who looks after me. In Genesis 17, when God comes into the picture to Abraham in light of Hagar, he declares to him, I am God Almighty. In Genesis 18, when God welcomes Abraham into intercession to pray for Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham testifies, Far be that from you, shall the judge of the earth do what is not just? In Genesis 21, when he has the promised son and even local nations are recognizing God's handiwork in his life, the Philistines, the story ends with him building an altar, calling on the name of the Lord. Genesis 21, verse 33, the Lord, the everlasting God. And then at the most crucial point in Abraham's life, when God asks him the impossible to take that promised son and sacrifice him. What is the name of God revealed at the end of that story when Isaac is spared? The Lord will provide. This is God revealing his glory for the first time through one man's life. The Bible's mission is to make God's known, and the goal and meaning of our lives is to make God known. So let me ask you, if this is how God revealed himself in these specific, clear names through Abraham, a broken sinner like you and me, what can people know about God through your life? Can God be known through your life? Or is he just your best friend, a God without name, a God amongst the many gods? Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, let your light shine before others so that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Hear that. Not to just the God who is there, but the Father who is in heaven, the Father of the Son who dies for sinners and resurrects to give them hope. The specific names of God. Is that what people know through your life's decisions? 
do they know that you serve the God who sees because of your prayer life? That when people listen to your prayers, they know how dependent and sweetly devoted you are because you know the God who looks after you? Do they know that God is everlasting and you are not? By the way, you're just a steward with your stuff. Your life is frail and timed and whatever God provides, you don't white knuckle. You live open-handed, trusting whatever God gives and takes. Do people know God Almighty because you live for the greater works of the kingdom, not for the little works you can accomplish with your strength and your resources? Do they know your faith that you're going to see dead people live because you're seeking first the kingdom of God? What do people know about God's name through us? I love the prayer of Thomas Kempis, a Christian in the 1400s. Hear this prayer. He prays, write your blessed name upon my heart, there to remain so indelibly graved that no prosperity, no adversity shall ever move me from your love. Be to me a strong tower of defense, a comforter in tribulation, a deliverer in distress, a very present help in trouble, and a guide to heaven through the many temptations and dangers of this life. Amen. May that be not only our prayer, but what is displayed in our days and spoken as the final word over our graves. As we look on Abraham's life, we find an example. We are offspring of Abraham. Did you know that? Those who believe, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Ephesians 3.6, Gentiles are fellow heirs through the gospel. This is how we find salvation, the blessing to come through the true son of Abraham. We know the path because Abraham's life illustrated it and Christ walked it perfectly. Why does that matter? Hebrews chapter 2. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Who did Christ die for and who does Christ help? Abraham's offspring. This story is meant to give us hope. The sovereign God, faithful to Abraham, is the same sovereign God over the church of Jesus Christ, the true son of Abraham. But allow me to conclude with this last thought and application. If that's how God loved Abraham, don't we understand that's how we're to love one another? If God was so patient and sovereign and kind and teaching, does that not teach us what love is for one another? 2 Timothy 4.2 does say, preach the word, but he says, preach the word with complete patience and complete teaching. Each of us are on that long-term plan of faith, whether a 25-year plan, 30-year plan, five-year plan. Whatever God has in the day's portion to us, he is working to complete his work of grace. How is the work of grace complete? Through the church. Faithful one anothering. just like bonsai trees. Takes decades and generations to see that one tree become a work of art. 
brothers and sisters, we are called not to focus on our own faith, but the faith of others, that the generations to come would be shaped by the grace of God we have been gifted in Jesus Christ. May we be faithful to such a work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you were not only faithful to the first generation, but to the second and the third and all generations to today. May we be faithful in one another, applying that grace, that kindness, that faithfulness, that one anothering, being transparent, broken, and seeing sinners be saved and sanctified, that we would stand before you unashamed. Lord, we know that when we die, our sins are part of our legacy. But the final word is your grace that casts out our sins as far as the east is from the west. That is the only way we will stand before you unashamed. May we live daily in faith and take joy that as we choose the promises, as we rest in the promises, we trust the promises of God. Your grace is enough. Your grace has the final say of our lives because of the blood of Jesus. Praise be to you for the gift of the blessing of Abraham in that son you give us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.